Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. If you have a Bible, we're going to read from Luke chapter um, 12. Luke chapter 12. I'm excited about this um, message. I really feel that it's, um, I've been excited for months to think that I'm going to get to preach on this. It is, um, I, I feel like it's foundational. It, if you've taken the pastor's class, this is, this is such a core value that it's, I don't even mention it as a core value because it underlies every value as uh, uh, of our church. So really excited to get to um, talk about what I feel is the most important life-shaping principle of, uh, of any that we um, talk about. Um, by the way, it's also Michael Puckett's birthday today and that, that's, yeah. And that is not the life-shaping principle that I was referring to. So stand and let me read uh, this passage, one of my favorites in all of, uh, all of God's word. Starting in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching a large crowd. So we pick it up at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, well, what do I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, well, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And all the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Do you hear what Jesus says? Everything you stored up, whose will they be? Reminds me that one Wag said, the man who works um, six days a week, 14 hours a day, will be greatly, greatly appreciated by his wife's second husband. Um, all that you work for, Jesus says, whose will uh, all of it be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Skip down to verse 32. Jesus says, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Father God, would you come into um, Seven Rivers Church over these five weeks and would you renew us as a church, person by person, 
um, in this place to, to actually experience um, that you're, the, you're a father who says to your little flock, behold, I give you the kingdom. And that your love and care for us would inflame in us a passion to love and care what matters most to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. John Ortberg's a pastor. I love what he writes. Golda Hall, my mother's mother, lived with us when I was growing up. She was built soft and round the way grandmothers were before they took up aerobics. She was a game player and she didn't like to lose. She didn't get mean or mad, but to use an expression from her childhood, she had some snap in her girdle. Grandmother was at her feistiest when it came to Monopoly. I mean, we've had leaders like uh, General Patton or Attila the Hun. They had a reputation for being tough, but they're lap dogs next to my grandma. She was a kind, gentle soul, but at the Monopoly table, she would take you to the cleaners. When I got the initial 1500 from the banker to start the game, I always wanted to hang on to my money, but my grandmother knew how to play the game. She understand you don't win without risk, and she didn't play for second place. She would spend every dollar she got. She would buy every piece of property she landed on. She would mortgage every piece of property she owned to the hilt in order to buy everything else. She understood what I did not, that accumulating is the name of the game and money is how you keep score. And she played with skill and passion, reckless abandon, and eventually she would watch me land on boardwalk one time too many and hand over to her what was left of my money and put my little race car marker away. Don't worry about it, she said. Someday, you'll learn how to play the game. Well, I feel pressure this morning because I'm going to attempt to teach you how to play the game, only the game isn't a game. The game is called life. And one of the saddest things is that people can live their entire God-given earthly life, come all the way to the end, and never realize why they were here in the first place and completely miss the purpose of life. So that's, that's the question we're asking. What is the purpose of life? What is the aim of life? Why do you exist? Why did God create you? Why has he given you breath and strength to continue your life day by day all the way to this point? Why are you still alive? Why are you on earth? What's your purpose? What's your purpose? What, what would deem your life, if you came to the end of it, what would deem the way you lived your life and declare that it would be successful? Now it's fascinating, across our country, across the spectrum, we have unity about almost nothing, it seems like, in our country, except for this one thing I guarantee, because it's a matter of scientific um, polling and questioning. You can ask people from the World War II generation of the baby boomers all the way down to teenagers today, you can ask them, what do you believe is the aim of life? And in America, the number one answer far and away is the accumulation of wealth. The accumulation of wealth and then the parlaying of that wealth into leisure, travel, um, and, and comfort, right? Get the boat, get the nicest car, get the toys, um, um, get a house with all the uh, amenities. That's why we're here. That's what we're trying to accomplish when we wake up every day. So it's all the more shocking when you open the Bible and Jesus describes a man who did exactly that, right? He, he accumulated tremendous wealth and right on the cusp of enjoying it all, he dies. 
And Jesus calls that man a what? A fool. A fool. The very thing our culture celebrates, Jesus said, is a fool. He missed the whole point. So what's the point? That's where we're going this morning, okay? What's the point? What's the aim? What's the aim of life? High school seniors on a mission trip, yes, I'm talking to you. Uh, because you're about to go to college. You've got to get this down. If you're a retiree, maybe you're a new retiree. Man, this is a perfect point for you to think this through. Um, every one of us, the clock is ticking, right? I don't want to waste my life. So I'm going to give you a little hint before I go any further. What's the aim? Here it is. We are pieces of art designed to draw attention to the artist and not draw attention to ourselves. That's the purpose of life. We are pieces of art designed to live in such a way that we draw attention to the artist and not to ourself. And we are simply made for nothing else. Got it? Ready to go? Here we go. Got your book open to the right page. Sorry I didn't help you with the actual outline in there. I think you guys can get it. The aim of life. What's the first point? Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching a crowd and a young man interrupts. Almost impertinently, he, he interrupts and he seems to ask a question that has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying. The young man says, uh, can you help me? Because I got a problem. I got a family problem. My brother is, uh, is not uh, being fair to me in the distribution of the inheritance, right? Nothing separates families like inheritance, like squabbling over uh, whatever's being left to. And, and it, you have to know in the Jewish, uh, this is probably the older brother uh, that he's complaining about because the older brother had the, the power. He was the family leader. He would, he would uh, distribute. And the uh, Jewish culture, guess who got twice the inheritance? The older brother. The older brother got double. That was his place in the family. Got more than everyone else. But somehow or another, However this older brother is, is managing this, this younger brother is not satisfied, is he? He thinks he's getting ripped off. He thinks he's being mistreated. And he asks Jesus, will you intervene and straighten this out? And this prompts Jesus to say to the crowd, beware, beware of covetousness, right? Jesus says, beware of um, uh, making your life's aim to accumulate an abundance of wealth. And then Jesus tells a story, right? And the story is, is that there's a rich man. He has great land holdings and his land produces an incredible yield, so much so that he doesn't even have the storage capacity to keep it. Now, if you don't have a storage capacity for something, then you might do what? You might give it away to people who need it. But that's not what happens. He doesn't give it away. In fact, he tears down his barns in a great expense he builds bigger and bigger and bigger barns uh, and, he, and he sets the path of his life as what? Bigger, 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 more, 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 better, better, better. That's the aim of his life, right? And when he gets all his new barns completely filled to such an extent, finally he says, all right, enough, enough. And now I will retire and I will enjoy the fruits of my labor and I will eat, drink, and be merry. But he didn't, count. he didn't account for one thing. What was that? Hardening of the arteries, right? And the Bible says 
that night, the night of his retirement, he dies. And everything that he's lived for um, is now lost. And the Bible says that he is a fool. He's a fool because he was what? Because he was rich toward himself and not toward God. Now, let me just say something, uh, unless you would um, be misled. There's nothing wrong with being prosperous. There's nothing wrong with working hard, studying hard, preparing yourself, going to school, entering a career, you know, making wise choices with your money, being frugal, investing um, properly and, and effectively. Nothing wrong with, um, with being prosperous, getting uh, paid well, being, uh, getting bonuses, being record, uh, rewarded well for your labor. There's nothing wrong with it at all. Um, I had a, a, a pastor friend was telling a group of pastors how he walked into some guy's office and asked the guy for $3 million. I'm just processing this in my head. You know, how do you walk into somebody's office and ask them for $3 million? He said, and when he asked, the man's response was, do you want it all today or do you want it in two installments? I thought the response would be, no, get out of my office. Um, and he says, all right, I'll give you a million. He took a checkbook out and wrote a check for a million and a half. Um, and so I'm listening to this um, story and, and uh, I asked, I said, how, how do you get the freedom to walk into somebody's office and ask him for that? He said, well, he made 23 million last year. So I didn't think I was asking for very much. 23 million, wow. Um, and, uh, and you know what? I'm thrilled that there are people that make $23 million and care about the work of the church and care about the work of the gospel and care about giving it away. I think that's a beautiful thing. There's nothing wrong with being prosperous. The rich man was a fool because he wasn't rich toward God, he was rich toward himself. Um, he believed the aim of life was himself. What is the aim of life? The aim of life is don't be a fool. Don't make life about yourself. The fool, the Bible says, hath said in his heart, what? And you know how to finish that sentence? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What the fool does is they displace God as being primary, the priority, the center, right? And they make themselves the center. That's a fool. He was rich towards himself. The end and purpose of his life was his well-being. He's self-absorbed. His happiness is number one. Sometimes you hear people say, so-and-so just doesn't love themselves enough. That person has never existed on the planet Earth. Our problem isn't a lack of self-love. It is an overabundance of self-love. Um, so what's the aim of life? Remember I said that's the question? What is the aim of your life? What's the aim of of life. Everybody develops a strategy, right? I'm going to get life by getting a job that's prestigious. I'm going to get life by uh, making a lot of money and, and uh, buying really cool stuff and doing cool things. I'm going to get life by uh, finding a, a, a beautiful girlfriend. Uh, I'm going to get life by finding a husband who can um, take care of his family in a, in a great way. I'm going to I'm gonna get life just by having fun and no responsibilities and living however I please. I'm gonna get life by, see, everybody's got a strategy. There's a thousand different strategies, right? But every one of them has one thing in common. 
If the aim of your life has you at the center, then you are digging wells that will produce no water. And as hard as you work at your strategy, you see, you can even accomplish your strategy and you won't know satisfaction and your life won't be full. You won't be rich at what really matters. You ultimately will have been a fool. The fool makes life about themselves. Um, They make um, every day about themselves. When they wake up in the morning, their first thought is, I wonder if this will be a good day for me. I wonder if I'm being appreciated today. I'm wondering if I'm happy today. I wonder how well I'm doing um, today. They think about themselves incessantly because that's the core value of their life, right? They make marriage about themselves. People have told me I'm exiting my marriage and sometimes I'll ask why would you do that? And they say, because I'm not happy. And after all, my happiness trumps everything. Some people make parenting about themselves. I wish my children understood their responsibility to make me look good and to make me feel good about myself. Um, Somebody told me about a volleyball game they went to where the, uh, there was a parent who was yelling at the um, referees, um, yelling at the other team, yelling at the other team's fans, yelling at, you know, whatever there was to yell at. And, um, but worst of all, was yelling at his own daughter um, as she played. And, um, and he made, uh, I'm yelling at her teammates, um, and, uh, and finally, at a key moment, in a strategic moment in the entire match, um, the daughter chokes, you know. She fails. She blows it at, at a key moment. Uh, a play that wasn't even particularly hard to make, um, she fails to make. And uh, they said that the man issued what was almost a plaintive wail. Um, in the uh, in the gym, everybody could hear him, and out of his mouth came these words: "Do you have any idea what you're doing to me?" And I'm sure she had no idea, right, that her responsibility in life was to make her father feel good um, about himself. You can make parenting about yourself. We have the ability to make anything about ourselves. Think about retirement, right? How is retirement marketed? You've paid the price. You went work to work every day. You worked hard. You saved up. You scrimped. You put your kids through college. You've done it. Now it's time for what? I haven't seen a retirement ad that says yet, move to Florida and you're going to have a chance to work at the homeless shelter. You're going to have a chance to work for the um, food bank. You're going to have a chance to be a guardian ad item. You're going to have more time than ever to deny yourself and work even harder and be more self-sacrificial than you've ever been in life. Come to Florida for that opportunity. That's not what any of the ads say, is it? No, it's your chance to make life about you. And nothing will make you more miserable than making life about you at any stage of your life. Got it? Um, Imagine the funeral of the rich farmer. It's tombstone. If all the community would gather around, man, this is rich and prominent dude, right? And his tombstone would probably read visionary, agricultural innovator, community leader, 
successful entrepreneur. Now everybody would sing his praises and they would wander away when the funeral was over. And as night was about to fall, an angel from heaven would sweep into the cemetery and write one word across that tombstone. What? Fool. Because the fool is rich towards themselves and not towards what ultimately matters. So you got it? There's number one aim of life. Pretty simple, right? Don't be a fool. Second, pretty simple as well. I love how straightforward the Bible is. Jesus sometimes, I don't think it takes a lot of uh, uh, intelligence to figure out when he says, be rich toward God. That's it, the aim of life. Be rich toward God. Arrange your life around what matters the most. That just is the most common sense, isn't it? Find out what matters the most and make that the point of your life. Seek ye first what? The kingdom of you. Doesn't say that. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be my name. My kingdom come. My will be done. That's not how the prayer goes at all, does it? The catechism of our church, you know, the taking of doctrine and putting it in question and answer form as a, as a um, method of, of instruction. The very first question of the catechism is what? What is the chief end of man? What's the chief end of man? What's the aim of man's life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? There it is. There's the aim of life. I've been created, I exist to bring my creator. I am a, a, an object of art. I'm to give the artist um, credit. I am to be for the glory of the artist. What's the first commandment? What's the very first commandment? Thou shalt have no other what? No other gods before me. Nothing should displace God from the central place. What's the first commandment restated in the New Testament? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? That's the first and greatest of all the commandments. God first. It's about God. It's about his glory. It's about him. Paul says, whatsoever you do, do all to the what? To the glory of God. Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So with all my heart, I want to say to you guys today, this is what it's about. All my life, I want, to, I want you to make that decision. If you've never made that decision to say, my life is for the glory of God. Now guess what? That means every single day you gotta get up because every single day there's kind of a reset thing that says make life about you, make life about you, make life about you. Every day we have to come back and say, no, 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 no I know better than that. I want my life to count for the glory of God. When you wake up in the morning, you get on your knees and, and I'm going to tell you, a great deal of people who go to church in North America go to church in North America because they know, believe they need God to make their life work. In other words, they are at the center of their life. And they want God to help them make their life work. And they go to church and they pray that their marriage and their finances and their health and all those things, that God would tend to all those things so that their life would work. But ultimately, at the core, is not God's glory and not God's kingdom and not God's church. It's themselves. But they want to get God on their side. And that's a lot of what passes for Christianity and religion in North America. 
It's just a, uh, it's just a um, recruiting of God, a uh, inclusion of God into uh, all the people in my life who understand that life is about me. So in the morning, when you wake up and you get on your knees, do you pray, God, please, I need you today to make my life work? Or do you get on your knees and say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Whatever happens today, if it brings you glory, then that's a good thing. Whatever hardship, whatever difficulty, if you choose to bring them, then I want you to be glorified. My day working isn't my ultimate aim. Your name, your glory, that's what matters. Um, Do you ask God to give you the life you want or do you offer your life to be used however he wants? Ann Voskamp writes, live in a universe where the sun revolves around you and eventually life as you want it will wither up and die. Only when your life revolves around the sun is there any hope of real life. The only way to have a good life is to choose Jesus as your whole universe. Jesus is not a belief to me. He is breath to me. He's not a lens for my life. He is my life. He is the only way to not suffocate on self, right? And Dane Ortland, gentle and lowly, writes, when we live to glorify God, we step into the only truly humanizing way of living. We function properly like a car running on gasoline rather than orange juice. What more enjoyable life is there? How exhausting is the misery of self? How energizing are the joys of living for another? Gosh, I hope you um, believe that. You know, we are made to have a transcendent purpose. We long for it. To, have, to, to know that our life is about something other than our little self. To know that our life's counting for something eternal. So you saw that landing on Mars this week. NASA, NASA launched that. Uh, absolutely amazing, wasn't it? They, they broadcast video from another planet for the first time ever in history. You could actually watch video from another planet. Staggering. A couple years ago, they actually began an initiative to colonize Mars. And, um, and here's the deal. They said, we're going to colonize Mars by 2027. So they began to invite people to apply. And, um, and, and here's the plan is that in 2027, they're going to put four people on Mars. And two years later, they're going to put four more people there. And two years after that, they're going to put four more people there. And they're going to continue that plan until there is life existing, um, thriving on Mars. Now there's a catch to the plan. What do you think that is? There's no return trip. You never come back. This isn't a temporary thing. Um, And do you know how many people applied? Over 200,000. It just shows you there's a hunger. Remember, you know who Pat Tillman was? Pat Tillman was, played for Arizona State University, uh, then the Arizona Cardinals football team. He was uh, all pro, all American, all pro. So his future was secure, millions of dollars, uh, his future. And yet when 9-11 happened, Pat Tillman and his brother went down to the recruiting office and signed up to be um, special forces for the U.S. military, where tragically Pat Tillman was killed in a friendly fire 
um, incident by, uh, by his own. You say, what a wasted life. No, no, no. You see the longing that people have? Even given vast amounts of money and fame and fortune to say, but I, it's got to count something for something more than that. It's in our hearts. So um, here it is. To live for the Jesus' glory and his church's well-being is the passion and aim of my life. Can you say that? Can you say that? The Jesus' glory and his church's well-being. How many of you wake up every day and say, how can I advance the church of Jesus Christ? Because the church is his bride. It's his love. It's what matters most to him. It's what he died for. He died for his church. I love Jesus and his church. God built this passion um, inside of us. Some people, um, you know, in, in, in premarital counseling, sometimes I like to ask a couple. It's a trap question. I'm warning you. If you ever come for that, it's a trap question. I'll ask them, how many kids are you going to have? They'll look at each other and sometimes they'll say, oh, I don't know, you know. Well, we want this or we want that or we think. And then when they're done, I like to say, why don't you talk to God about it? I didn't hear you say a word about that. Is it just what you want? Is that going to guide the decisions of your marriage? You're going to sit around and decide what you want to do? What about God's glory? What if God asked you to have more children or less children than what you want? We're just not that oriented to think that way, um, are we? Um, you know, what about, um, um, what about somebody who's diagnosed with cancer? Uh, very often our, our, our sole prayer is God heal them, God make them well, or the individual pray that God will you know, allow this and this and this and this, and we get it, they're suffering, and God's merciful and kind, and it's great to pray for them, and yet, what if a person having cancer and not being healed brings God more glory than is healing them? What if the purpose of our life is to bring glory to God, not necessarily get well and live longer on the earth? Um, the great opportunity. Some will say, as they do every time any the church ever talks about committing your resources, Seven Rivers just wants our money. No, Seven Rivers wants you to be eaten up with the glory of God. Johann Sebastian Bach, you know this. Perhaps the greatest composer, musical composer ever. On every score he wrote SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Do you know what? On every diaper you change young moms and dads, write SDG. This is for the glory of God I change diapers. For every pot of spaghetti you make, for every lunch you make, SDG for the glory of God. For every real estate sale you close, right? For every um, 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 yard you cut, for every um, um, a bit of plumbing you fix um, out there, this is for, the, for every bedtime story you read to your children, SDG for the glory of God. I want to tell you, living for God's glory will produce in you the greatest satisfaction in life. Jesus said the person who seeks to save his life ultimately what? He loses it. Just like the, just like the parable Jesus told. The man made his life about himself, he lost it all. The person who seeks to save his life loses it, but the person who gives up his life for my sake is the one who ultimately has 
life. So what is the great opportunity about? It's about offering you life. Life. Self is death. The Christ-centered life is an adventure. It's the greatest life there is. And again, high school missions trip. I learned on a missions trip in high school what I'm preaching. Um, When all my friends were back in Miami playing on the beach, and I was in West Virginia sweating my keister off on the top of some roof, putting a new roof on for a widow in the middle of Appalachia. And I remember thinking, I was made for this. Not roofing, but (laughs) I was made for this. This is better than being at the beach. To be laying down my life for something that matters. One of my heroes in this world was a missionary named John Payton, a Scottish missionary who went to the other side of the world to the island of Tanna in the New Hebrides, it was called then. And the missionaries that he and his wife went to replace, they went to replace because some years earlier those missionaries had been eaten. They had been eaten. Now there's a calling. He went with his new bride to the other end of the world to bring people Jesus. And she got pregnant. They had a baby. And she died. And because she died a week later, the baby died. And John Payton said, I would have gone mad in that desolate, lonely place, kneeling by the grave of my wife on her deathbed when I said to her, I am so sorry I brought you to this place. And she said to me, if I had my life to do over, I would come here again. And I would do it with even more joy. Oh gosh. I almost weep every time I read that. I would do it with more joy. He said her words is what fueled him to stay there for years, and eventually Christianity came and churches are there. Do you know the PCA has churches on that island? The aim of life, be rich toward God. So last then, and and we're we're really at the finish line here, is um, the aim of life. What's What's the last point? The last point is, what has the transformative power to set you free, not to be about yourself and to be about God, his glory, his kingdom? What has the transformative power? It's the realization that it's not about our being rich toward God. It's ultimately about his being rich toward us, right? God is the one who's the giver in this equation. It's never us, right? What does it say in verse 32 of chapter 12 that I read, it says, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Therefore sell your possessions and give them away. I mean, are you kidding? You're getting a whole kingdom. You're getting a whole kingdom. God's the big giver. You're not a big giver. It's the apprehension of the lavish love of God that moves us from deadly self-absorption to this eagerness to live for God's glory. The Bible says, he who did not spare his own son, you think he's going to be cheap with you? You think you're going to have want 
that destroys you, he didn't spare his own son for you. Will he not freely give you what? Some things, few things. The Bible says all things. Will he not freely give you all things? Now, how did this passage begin? It began with a younger brother complaining about his older brother that his older brother's ripping him off in the inheritance. What about our older brother? Our older brother's name is Jesus. He doesn't give us what we deserve to inherit either. We deserve to inherit the wrath of God. We deserve eternal damnation. Our older brother doesn't give us that. Instead, he gives us his inheritance. We have the greatest older brother ever imaginable. So the ultimate aim of life isn't even to be rich toward God. It's to realize that God is what? to realize what kind of father, what kind of older brother we have. It's to be rich toward them. I love, I, I, just, I just love this true story. A couple years ago in, uh, in New Jersey, you know, all over the country there are you know, factories and workplaces and, and they go in every week and they buy lottery tickets, you know, all together. And they pull their money and, and uh, all of that. And uh, so this at this particular factory in New Jersey, uh, um, in the workplace, 10, 10 guys, they put in $5 a week, they buy $50 of lottery tickets. They're going to, you know, every now and then they won a little bit here and there, but of course, um, nothing uh, to speak of. And um, uh, 50 bucks of tickets every week, everybody throws in five bucks. And then one weekend, they, they hit. I mean, the Powerball, the Mega, whatever, the... million. Now, one guy bought the tickets every week. The the lottery was like on Saturday night. So he's the only one who knew. Nobody else knew. He didn't tell any of the other guys. He went to work on Monday. And see, there was a little catch because nine of the guys had put their money in that week, but one hadn't. And so he called that one guy to his office before he told anyone else Guy doesn't know anything about the winning. And he says to him, hey, are you in? You know, on last week's buy of the tickets, um, are you in? The guy says, what? A lot of times we, we don't pay on time. That's not a big deal. You don't call me to your office. You don't like. Guy says, if you're in, I need your money. I says, what, five bucks? Do you think I'm going to, um, uh, you know, for, for five bucks? You call me in the office to get five bucks? I mean, what? what you're worried I'm going to... Um, Jip you out of $5? Guy says, I need your money. I need your money now. Are you kidding me? I got to go back. I got to get my wallet. I got to come out here with the money. I mean, we're friends. We've been friends a long time. What? What's the big deal? I need your money now. I just need to know if you're in on last week. The guy gets the money and throws it on the guy's desk. And the guy says, you just won $22 million. Our rich toward God is $5 worth. His rich towards us, staggering. We think it's a big deal to throw our $5 on the desk. Well, we're going to agonize it over the next five weeks, right? <laughs> our $5. The real purpose of life um, you know, is to realize that we only ever put Jesus at the center of our life when we realize 
that he put us at the center of his. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're, we're able to take something like the great, great opportunity and think and make it about us because we can make everything about us. And we can treat the great opportunity as if it's asking so much of us. It's asking us to make a great gift. But in this moment, we own that the, you're the great giver. And your grace and your love is lavish indeed. And Lord, whatever we do in response to it, I pray that we might do it with joy. Joy in our hearts. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for the leaders of this church, the elders, the deacons. I pray for um, our school administration. I pray for the pastors. I pray for Ray Cortez. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we might place your glory and your honor as the great passion of our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.